You're listening to Episode 4 of the Secret Origins Podcast and the story of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for this episode is the irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com and the Fire and Water Podcast. How are you doing, my best friend? I am extremely excited to be here, my best friend. (laughs) I am a huge fan of the Secret Origins series. I loved the mess out of this thing back in the 80s when it was coming out. I sought out the 70s versions when they were coming out. And let me tell you, actually, I'm going to pull back the, the veil a little bit here. I've got a secret to share. I'm kind of pissed at you. I mean, more than normal. Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of brought you in here to tell my listeners something they don't already know. Right. (laughs) Because um, most people don't really know that. Actually, I don't think anybody knows this, but the Who's Who podcast that my friend Rob Kelly, (laughs) I said my friend, whatever. This guy I know. Not your your best friend. We do not my best friend certainly, but we do a Who's Who podcast every month, and it's a blast. And it, we we've charted it out. It's going to go from 2012 to 2018. I think is how long it's going to take to do this whole thing. I kid you not. Uh, one issue a month. Anyway, the plan was all this time. Once we finished Who's Who, we were going to do the Secret Origin series. That was our next big project, and you have swooped in and stolen it. And I'm just saying, you better not screw this up. I mean, you're on episode four, and you brought in your biggest guest star yet. But from here, if it's just downhill, I'm going to be really ticked off that you ruined our idea. Mm, I wasn't really listening to any of that, so. Oh, right. Well, you'll probably just edit this out anyway. Yeah. There you go. Now, in your defense, I can't believe I even uttered those words, you do have a better idea of bringing in guest stars. It was just going to be me and Rob rambling. Now, having these other people in here, like, you know, you brought Chris Franklin in here, you know, you brought that, that Tim Wallace kid, you know, and then you had to go cover Captain Marvel Shazam. Blah! Your guys were nice, but really, that, that character, you know. But now, you know, now you're bringing, now you're bringing the cool. Well, you're batting cleanup, as they say, you know. You're, there it is. You're there, so... Um, well, before we get any further, let me let me announce for my listeners, and I'm sure they've heard this spiel before, but in case this is the first episode that anybody has tuned in, and you know what? When you bring the irritable shag, it's possible that this is the first episode that some of my listeners are tuning in for. In case you don't know, Secret Origins was a series published by DC Comics that ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. The series also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 issues with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Woohoo! And with that many stories, 
I'm sure at least one of them could answer the question, who is Donna Troy, right? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> or, or it could answer it 113 times, is that what you said, yeah. in different ways. Or it's a question that's still being answered today. You're still searching for the answer. Apparently she showed up naked from what I heard. I missed that. I can't believe I missed that. Yeah. How... In the New 52. Jeez. Right. Today, because this is episode four, we're going to be looking at Secret Origins issue four, which stars Firestorm the Nuclear Man. And Shag, why don't you tell my listeners why you are the perfect guest host to talk about Firestorm. And while you're doing that, because it's probably going to take 45 minutes, I'm going to go make a BLT and I'll be back in a little while. Perfect. You know, you could have stopped that sentence at Shag, tell him why you're the perfect guest host, and just stopped it there. <laughs> but anyway, um, my love for the nuclear man, which I can't say the word nuclear, nu- nuclear, I think is that right? It's kind of ironic, I can't say it, but uh, I first came ex- became exposed to the character in 1984 when he appeared on the Super Friends. I thought he was totally badass. So I then went up to the local convenience store, because I remember seeing a couple of dog-eared copies of Firestorm sitting in the, in the comic racks, and, and picked them up after watching the cartoon. My first issue was number 28, starring, that's right, Slipknot, the star of the upcoming Suicide Squad movie. Woo! Anyway, so uh, from then on, I was just in. Firestorm was my guy, and followed him all through all of his adventures, been a huge, huge fan all these years. And then in 2009, I looked around the internet, I did a sniff test, and nobody was running a Firestorm blog. I mean, really? Why, why wouldn't they? It just seems like a logical choice. So I saw a niche that needed to be filled, and I filled it because, quite frankly, no one else wanted to. And since then, I've been blogging about Firestorm on a several times a week basis. I have a podcast that I've been doing again with that guy, Rob Kelly, I mentioned, called the Firewater Podcast, which celebrates Firestorm and Aquaman. And uh, I somehow have become known as a bit of a Firestorm expert. <laughs> Your first exposure to Firestorm was from the Superpowers cartoon? Yeah, Super Friends, the legendary Superpowers show. That was actually my first exposure to Firestorm 2. And years later, before I ever read his comic, before I ever looked into the character, for a long time, I equated Firestorm with the Jack Kirby Fourth World characters and the new gods that were introduced at the same time. For years, I thought Jack Kirby created Firestorm. There was something about his design and the look, and I just lumped him in with Darkseid and uh, Mr. Miracle and Metron and all those guys. I can explain some of that. Uh, besides the Super Friends connection, Al Milgram did the design of Firestorm, and the cover of Fury Firestorm, or not Fury, the cover of Firestorm number one from 1977 does look very Kirby-esque, because he even got squared off fingers. Yes. Milgram used to ink some of Kirby stuff, and so Milgram's style at, at that point wasn't that far, I mean, it, it, there weren't one for one, but you could see the Kirby influence of some of the Firestorm designs and drawings. So, yeah, I could totally see why you would think he's a fourth world character. You put him next to Light Ray, there's some similarities. That's that's where my head was at for the longest time. It took it took a while before I before I learned the difference. It was actually it was listening to one of your interviews with Jerry Conway pre Fire and Water podcast. Oh, okay. So he's a great character. He is currently the star of the Flash TV series. Um, they have another guy in there who runs fast and wears red. But Firestorm's the star of the show. Yeah, that's and, where the money is. Right, exactly. And they have a couple other characters that come in every once in a while and do some things. But it's uh, it's been great. Robbie Amell and uh, Victor Garber heading it up. It's we're pretty exciting. Knocking it out of the park. It was a great first season. And um, now we're looking forward because there's the, the new series 
Uh, the spinoff comes next year, and it's going to be called uh, Firestorm and his Atomic Friends. Forget what you've read in the press. They misspelled it as Legends of Tomorrow. I don't know what that nonsense was about. But anyway, Victor Garber is going to be on there, and supposedly so they're going to figure out a way for Firestorm to be around even without Robbie Amell. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I enjoyed Robbie Amell on that show, but more than that, I want I want to see Firestorm as part of that show, and I don't want it to be just Martin Stein. Even though Victor Garber is great, he's an awesome character, and on most shows, I would watch him playing that character on his own. But the thing about the CW shows based on these DC properties is they do they they have a pretty formulaic structure and character structure, and I don't want Martin Stein to just be the guy who explains everything, the tech guy, the Felicity Smoke, or the yeah. Caitlin Snow. I don't want him to fall into that role. I want Firestorm to be an active part of this group. So. Well, the good thing is both the Adam and Professor Stein could fall into that role, really. Right. So I, I think we're going to, from what I hear, I hear, rumor, I hear rumors uh, from some folks in the know that supposedly Firestorm is supposed to be a very active part of this show. And as much as I did enjoy Robbie Mel as uh, Ronnie Raymond, Victor Garber is like Professor Stein stepping off the page. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And he's never even read the comics. You know, he did all that without reading the comics. Well, I mean, when the scripts are that good, I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, the scripts obviously put a lot of attention and a lot of love from the comics into them. So I think it was, I think it's an easy jump when, yeah. when the source material is appreciated in the words. The actors don't necessarily need to go back that far. They find it. So. Yep. Now if we could just get Firestorm back in the comic books. Ugh. <laughs> Where's my boy? We'll be right back after this short promotional break. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. Man of Tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Up. And away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman. Featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Secret Origins starring Firestorm the Nuclear Man. And again, issue number four, 75 pennies on the cover there, folks. Cover dated July 1986. But if you want a pristine copy of this comic, you're going to need to jump in your TARDIS and go back to April 10th, 1986. Yeah, that's right. April 10th at 1986, you can get a fresh copy off the stands, and I bet it's still going to smell like newsprint. So on the cover, you've got Firestorm exploding out of Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein. They're sort of in the bottom portion of the, of the, of the shot, sort of both ajar, one to the left, one to the right, looking sort of like, ah! 
and Firestorm's coming out of it with a huge grin with an atomic symbol around him, and it says, How it began. The fury of atomic fusion unleashed creates an, a hero for the new age. And the cover is drawn by Al Milgram. And, and that's, as I mentioned a little bit ago, is great because Al created the look of Firestorm. And so bringing Al back for this cover is wonderful. It's a very dynamic, very explosive uh, cover, and quite honestly, the most exciting shot in uh, the whole book we're going to talk about today. I'm glad you said it before I did, because <laughs> this is a really exciting cover that's a little misrepresentative of the content of what's inside the issue. <laughs> yep. Um, before going further, Firestorm's got kind of a crazy smile on his face. That's, he really does. He's like, jokerized. I, that's what I was going to say. That. I was like, this looks like one of those Joker's last laugh variant covers from like 2001 or whatever that, whenever that uh, tie-in was. That He's just really happy. He's yeah. very excited to be here. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, just to put a, give you a little frame of reference for you match heads out there, by the way, that's what we call fans of Firestorm. This issue hit the stands right in between issues 49 and 50 of Firestorm. So it, giving you some perspective, that is the end of uh, the Moonbow saga. Thank goodness that's over. And right before we get into the whole Captain X stuff, and quite frankly, this is about three or four months before Jerry Conway's off the title. When was the next annual coming out? Because in the back matter, um, and we'll, we can get to that later, Jerry Conway mentions <laughs> that Al Milgram would be coming back for annual number four. Yeah. When did yep. that come out in relation to these issues? Do you remember? Well, if this hit the – it would have been the summer, I would think. Um, I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm doing this totally off the top of my head here. But if this hit the shelf in April – um, then the annual probably would have come out, let's say, in June, so three, three four months after this. Okay. And that, what they did with that annual, if I remember correctly, they brought in a bunch of artists uh-huh. to draw just a few pages. And some were artists that had never touched Firestorm before. Some were uh, artists that had rarely touched them. Like Gene Colan actually does a few pages. Um, a lot of really uh, different artists. And, well, it, on paper, it sounds like a really cool idea. Um, sort of like bringing in legendary George Tuska to draw this <laughs> on paper. Sounds like a good idea. Not so great in execution. So, and again, right as Jerry was heading out the door. Okay. So, or was asked to leave, depending on how you look at it. All right. Let's, uh, let's pull back the cover and actually get into this issue. All right. This is a Jerry Conway, George Tuska, Pablo Marcus joint. And, um, just to give you a little bit of a perspective, George Tusk, as I mentioned, did draw several issues of Firestorm. And the reason why was because Jerry Conway had a huge respect for George Tuska. Now, George Tuska is an incredibly accomplished artist. The stuff he did uh, in you know, like the 60s and the 70s is gorgeous. When he's not drawing spandex superheroes, he does amazing work. However, by the mid-1980s, Putting him on a spandex superhero comic is not exactly the right place to be. And now as I say that, I maybe I even got to retract that further because there's not a lot of spandex in this comic and he's still not the right artist for this. <laughs> hmm. And, you know, and, and also, Secret Origins kind of had a history, though, of bringing in classic artists. I mean, you've got, so far in just the first three issues, you've got what? Uh, Wayne Boring. Wayne Boring. you got Jerry Gil Kane. Gil Kane. Yep. And then the next issue that Gene you're going to cover next month, yeah, you got Gene Colan. So, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of classic artists here in the beginning. So, I wonder if that had maybe sort of like a, you know, like they knew that after Crisis they weren't going to be able to use a lot of those guys as much. So, I wonder if they were trying to find places to still, you know, show respect, show honor, let them do stuff. I don't know. I wonder if that's was part of that. It would make sense. I mean, I can yeah. see. Yeah. yeah. It's just speculation, but uh, and Pablo Marcos had inked Firestorm a couple of times, so this was him returning to it as well. So, all right. So let's jump into this. Um, this is the, the biggest thing that's interesting about this issue is that this is Firestorm's origin from the perspective of Martin Stein. 
which we've never seen before. We've seen Firestorm's origin a bunch of times. In, you know, issue number one, we've seen it, it recapped in issue, I don't know, it's like issue 22, I think. It happens, you know, in every two-page spread whenever he shows up in another book because they have to explain him, whatever. The interesting thing here is, like, the, the traditional Firestorm origin you always read doesn't even start till page 18 of this comic. Right. So the first 17 pages really is something entirely new that we've never seen before. And uh, so, all right, well, why don't we just get into it? All right. So the story opens. Firestorm is flying across um, Pittsburgh, and he is, you know, he's having a conversation with Stein. They split, and then we start to follow Stein's adventure. So Stein goes back to his office at Vandermeer College, and he meets there with brilliant scientist Wendy Olson. She's a, she's a lovely lady, brilliant, but she is unfortunately stricken with cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. And um, she asks Martin if he'd like to join her and her friend Stu for dinner. He declines because he's such a workaholic. And then he starts recollecting. He's standing there with a, he's looking through the blinds as these nice shadows are across his face from the blinds. And he's recollecting how being a workaholic really led to him being Firestorm. And he remembers back in the early 1960s, he was Stanford University. He was an undergrad in the physics department. And there's this whole scene we see where he is bullied by a football player. This football player wants Stein to allow him to copy Stein's math test the next day because there's a math test. This, this football player knows he's not going to pass. So if he can copy Stein's paper, he'll know he'll be able to pass. And the, the guy's a total jerk. He's a total a-hole. He humiliate, humiliates Stein horribly right in front of this pretty young blonde thing who, um, by the way, whose name is uh, – I wrote down the wrong name. <laughs> Crystal Frost. <laughs> I wrote down Killer Frost. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Boy, you know what? They should have seen her, her life path coming. If that was I know. Funny. I mean, yeah. Ice Queen, Crystal Frost. I mean, come on. Anyway. So, um, and, and, and Stein is embarrassed. I mean, he's been knocked down. He's been bullied. He's been beat up a little bit. He's scared and he's embarrassed. And Crystal offers to help Stein. And he's kind of rude to her. And he's not horribly rude, but he's rude enough basically saying, leave me alone. So she runs off in tears, and it turns out that this rejection scars her for life and gives her a deep-seated hatred towards men, which eventually leads to her becoming Killer Frost. And Stein has no real idea that he's caused this at this point. And he was even trying to work up the courage to ask her out. So, And this begins this throughout, a reoccurring theme throughout the book where Stein feels helpless and weak. So the next day, he, he decides to let Brad cheat off his test. But what he does is he purposely misses every single question on the test. So Brad gets a complete failing grade as well as Stein. Stein's very proud of this. Two days later, when the grades are posted, Brad beats the living snot out of Stein. It's a brutal, brutal beating, and lots of people are watching this happen. And by the end of the fight, Stein realized that he is alone. He is helpless because all these people started and watched him get beat up. He asked them to help. Nobody would. Nobody stopped the fight. So he realizes he is alone in life. And the only tool he has available to him is his mind because his body is clearly useless. So um, he realizes going forward, he's going to have to depend upon his mind to go forward in life. And at this point, he feels like Firestorm was created based on his motivations at this point. Then we get this awesome 80s montage. Love it. Where we see Stein being very successful in life. We see him graduate college. We see him this bit's a bit crazy. He, go, he graduates summa cum laude, his, gets his master's and his doctorate all on the same day. I'm not sure that's even possible. So goes to work for Star Labs, and then, uh, and then we still find out he's still insecure. We find out that whenever he hears people laughing in the background, he's secretly wondering if they're laughing at him. So it's very sad. He, uh, he meets Cl- this woman named Clarissa, who um, when I do my monthly reviews of Firestorm, I call her the lilac-tinted whore. But anyway, her hair's not pur- her hair's not purple here yet. So she, uh, sorry, <laughs> I do not like Clarissa one bit. 
She's very, very forward. She comes on to, to Stein, and they have this whirlwind romance, and they end up married a week later in Vegas. Interestingly enough, the first few years of his marriage with Clarissa were apparently deliriously happy. Um, I would have expected that thing lasted three months, but apparently it went for years. Then, after a while, the relationship does sour. Uh, at this point, we're, we're told it sours over money. And there's a moment where they're having an argument. She's not listening to him. She's totally being pretty rude to him. And he grabs her by the arm too hard. And she tries to pull away. And it's, it's not necessarily abusive. But there is a, a surprising sort of sign of physicality there in Stein when he gets angry. And we saw that repeated in the Firestorm series years later. Well, I guess depends on how you look at it. This story was written after that. But chronologically, it would have taken place later, where he did raise an arm in anger to Clarissa. He didn't hit her, but he came close to it. Obviously, she brings out the worst in him. And I'm not saying that's okay, but it's, it's an interesting f- character flaw to, mm-hmm. to, to demonstrate in a character. Eventually, they end up in, in divorced. Again, lots of this reoccurring theme of him feeling helpless and insecure. And between the divorce and the insecurity, he starts drinking heavily. At this point, he leaves Star Labs. He goes to work for Hudson Power. And we get, again, another montage where we see several years pass by. He wins a Nobel Prize. He builds the Hudson Nuclear Power Plant, which is amazing because it's going to be the world's first fully automated nuclear power plant. How cool is that? And it took nearly a decade to build because of cost overruns and problems with subcontractors, a lot of protesters, things like that. And at one point, uh, through the stress of this, Stein even imagines, imagines seeing that football player, Brad. He imagines seeing Brad as one of the protesters. And he's so rattled that he needs to go to a bar and he begins to drink heavily. Unfortunately, he brought his assistant with him, a gentleman by the name of Dalton Black. Uh, or Danton Black, sorry, Danton Black. Don't forget that name, folks. And he shares his insecurities with Danton. And Danton then later on uses those to his own advantage when um, they don't get specific, whether it's days or weeks later, we're not sure. But Danton starts stealing from Hudson uh, Nuclear Power Plant. And Stein finds him out, fires him, but then Danton threatens to expose Stein's alcoholism if he turns him in. So it's kind of scary. Then, now we reach page 18. We get into the standard origin stuff for Firestorm. Um, the day the Hudson Power Plant was supposed to go online, Danton shows up with the Nuclear Regulation Council. They shut it down. They say, you know what? According to, our, according to Mr. Danton Black, you stole these designs from him, Professor Stein, which is clearly a bald-faced lie. But Danton's just trying to play for time and seeing if he can squeeze some money out of this. Uh, Stein, after everybody's gone, Stein's by himself, again, feeling insecure, feeling upset. He's been drinking. Who has been drinking that that moment but he has lots of issues with that and he's basically he's almost at a mental breaking point he decides to take things in his own hands and he activates the power plant that night now remember it's fully automated so he can do this by himself which a lot of people you know yeah could you would you want a fully automated nuclear power plant i'm not so sure but either way that's it works for the story it was 1977 you go with it uh, as the reactor's powering up, these protesters are sneaking into the plant, and it turns out they're planning to put dynamite next to the reactor. And this is being led by a guy named Eddie Earhart. Because that's how you show the dangers of nuclear power. Exactly. Well, it actually, that was his point of it. He was going to make it look so bad, you know? And so uh, Eddie has actually brought along a stooge with him, a young man by the name of Ronnie Raymond. Ronnie has no idea that he's about to be the patsy for all this. Eddie Earhart knocks out Ronnie Raymond and puts him next to the nuclear pile with the, with the dynamite, planning for Ronnie to take the fall. Stein shows up, tries to stop him. Stein gets knocked out by Eddie because Eddie's he's a bad news. He's a total pimp daddy, by the way, with his lamb chops, the matchup with his mustache. He's like Dave Mustang mustache and stuff. 
stuff and chops, <laughs> and he's got gold chains and all. Oh, you can't see his gold chains. That's disappointing. Anyway, he's he's totally seventies fly. So there they are in front of the nuclear power plant, uh, a, a reactor about to blow. Ronnie actually wakes up. Stein's still unconscious, and Ronnie Raymond tries to drag Stein away from the power plant. And that's the point when it explodes. The combination of the dynamite and this, you know, experimental reactor core, and these two particular men, they fuse into one naked guy whose hair is on fire. Meanwhile, we find out Danton Black is also there. He had snuck back into the power plant as well for some reason. And uh, it is, they tell us that later on we will discover he has gained the power to create duplicates and also is uh, the star of the TV show Flash. So Firestorm, uh, you find out this just ju- merged form. Ronnie Raymond controls the body. Stein is a disembodied sort of spectral advisor. Firestorm stops the protesters. And then uh, that's really all you get at Firestorm. Then we click back to modern day, and Stein thinks to himself how sometimes he still feels weak and helpless. And, but that, those things that drove him at Stanford – you know, with the, the feelings of weakness and, and helplessness drove him to be such a what they term to use a grind. There, he decides, you know what, he's not going to be afraid anymore. He doesn't want to push himself like that, so he decides to put the work aside, and he instead decides to go out to dinner and joins Wendy and Stu for pizza with his friends. So, all right. Woo! Then there's a big text piece at the end by Jerry. It's a very stream of consciousness. And uh, one of the interesting things he talks about in there, which really has no bearing on the story, the, the, the secret origins, is that he says that he intended for the Firestorm character to be about Ronnie's adolescence, but instead it's become a journey about Ronnie's uh, journey into adulthood. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the super friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. And we're back. Okay. Shag, thoughts on the issue? Lots of thoughts. Um, first things first, though, let's just put it out there. I mean, we talked about at the top of the show a little bit about George Tuska's art. Mm-hmm. Folks, this is a great comic, and if you're going to come after, uh, after it after we talked about it, you're coming for the writing, okay? I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to belabor the point a lot. Uh, George Tuska's a fine artist. This is not great work. Done. So, but I, there are a couple things in the issue artistically I did like. Like, there's a scene where Stein is uh, in the very beginning, where right before the the flashback starts, he's looking out through the through the blinds, like the mini blinds on his window, and there's a nice light effect as the as the light is coming through the blinds, and you see the horizontal lines across his face. Those are pretty cool. You, um, Brad, Brad Baxter, the 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 big bruiser college kid. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time they show him. He's got like the world's thickest neck. It's hysterical. <laughs> and it is just like I didn't notice it the first time I read it, but it's just, just a 
just it's got like a tree trunk for a neck. It's a, it's a riot. Stein's smoking a pipe a lot through the issue, which is fantastic. I love it when Stein's smoking the pipe because he, he did smoke a pipe in his very first ep- issue. And so uh, it's nice. And, and in fact, he had the pipe at the end of the Secret of Origins, which implies he still smokes a pipe, but we don't <laughs> see it in the Firestorm comic normally. And then uh, the last thing that really stood out to me is when he's getting drunk with Danton Black, when he's really feeling sorry for himself, mm-hmm. there's a shot where he's looking at himself in the mirror. And um, it's just powerful because he, he clearly does not like who he sees looking back at him. And, uh, and that's really when he's at his lowest point. And that, that, that shot's just really well done. It is. It is. I think George Tusco was not at his best when he was doing superhero comics. Yeah. And I think this isn't a superhero comic. This, this, this just isn't a superhero story. Uh, it is a very character-driven piece. Um, it's, well, I think you've said it before, this is, this, this is an exploration of a middle-aged, sexually frustrated <laughs> old man. True and, that. Yeah. So I think... The art is good in the quiet moments when he's just focusing on what is going on beneath the surface for Professor Stein. I think I think Tuska really sells it in those moments. In other moments, like when Stein is getting beaten down by Brad, that moment just that needed to be darker, that needed to be more gruesome, more savage and brutal. I mean that's that's the the effect that it has on Stein. Yeah, and it looks cartoonish. It looks soft. Like the characters are too rounded. It's too bright. Um, I, I don't think the issue is so much um, that it's Tuska drawing superheroes versus non-superheroes. I think it just comes down to Tuska drawing in 1986. It, I, that could it, be it. And, and but you know what? Hats off to DC for trying to give work to the older creators because you know at that point they don't have a retirement plan. They, you know, they don't have health insurance probably unless they have it through their spouses. And so the fact that they're still throwing him some work, you know, is a nice nod to DC. So it didn't give us the best art, but at least they they got the they kept uh, the guy working. A few months after this, he drew the Flash story, and that was the the Jay Garrick Flash story. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, just I just said we're not going to belabor this point. (laughs) Were you not listening to what I said? I do I ever. True that. True okay. that. All right. Well, so, okay, enough about the art. Let's actually – let's get into the story. Um, All right. So w- what did you think of this as a you – because know, I talked for quite a while doing the recap. As someone who's either new to Firestorm or not as versed as Fire, in Firestorm as me, I mean, let's face it, who is? Um, <laughs> sadly, uh, what, did you, what did you think about this issue when you came at it? It surprised me. Uh, it really surprised me. <laughs> did, did it jump out and go, boo? <laughs> yes, yes, with a ghost mask and it had a, like a fake knife. Um, no, it, it surprised me in that, I mean, just looking at the cover, I was expecting to, to revisit the origin of Firestorm through Ronnie's eyes because that's what we had seen. That's what, that's what Jerry Conway had already presented only about seven or eight years earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was I was expecting to get pretty much a rehash of what I had only read just a few years earlier. It was only a couple years ago that I read the the Firestorm the Nuclear Man five issue series. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Scavito, who was on the last episode when we were talking about Shazam, he got me the first issue of that series, Firestorm's first appearance, and then hey. I collected the other the other issues to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah, you have uh, friends with taste. I'm impressed. No, because he also got me Guy Gardner Warrior Issue Zero. So, <laughs> anyway, so that's what I was expecting when I went into this. 
and looking at the cover of this issue, it's so exciting. It's so dynamic. And then getting into it, I was like, okay, this is not Ronnie's story at all. This is Martin Stein's story. And we're Firestorm is barely in this comic. I think right. he's, in, he's in all of six panels. <laughs> and, and we don't see him really being Firestorm. Um, he's, he's naked in like two of those panels, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we hear tell of him flying and saving a cat from something that's that's completely off off screen that's before the story comes so i was surprised that i didn't learn who firestorm was and what he's all about from this issue of secret origins and it comes down to this idea of you could approach this secret origin series from two different angles is this filling in a missing gap in some characters story like a lot of the golden age characters who never had an origin told that's what Roy Thomas was delivering. But for some of the other characters, especially some of the more recent characters, I think it was meant to be a jumping on point. Like with Blue Beetle, that story was meant to jumpstart his own solo book that happened a month later. And this book, I, I liked the story because I liked the exploration of Martin Stein's character from that perspective. But this did not make me want to read more about Firestorm. And I think if I was coming at it from your position, you had been reading about the character for a couple of years beforehand. This would have been cool, I'm assuming, because it's peeking behind the curtain of some aspect of the character that you didn't know. But if this was my first taste of the character, again, I know more about this frustrated, haunted old man, but I don't know about this superhero. And, and I think we probably relate to it a little more now because we're older, middle-aged guys now ourselves. Very, very sexually frustrated. Well, right, speaking <laughs> for yourself there. But so it's – I guess if you step back, it is truthfully the secret origin of Firestorm though because Professor Stein is half of it. And every time we'd ever seen Firestorm's origin before, we saw all about Ronnie. Mm-hmm. Well, all, this is just the flip side of that. It's all about Professor Stein. So it still qualifies. And, and why Firestorm existed is all still tied back to Professor Stein's actions and how he was a, a haunted man and you know had all these fear and insecurities, which did lead to ultimately what created Firestorm. So it does work from that sense. But you're right. They just forgot to include Firestorm in the book. So I, I think if it had been – this is what, 22 pages. If it had been a 28-page story – you could have got six pages of Firestorm beating up you know, Eddie Earnhardt or seeing him fight Killer Frost or mm-hmm. Hyena or something. Then it would have been fine. But yeah, it's, 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 there really is not enough Firestorm in this Firestorm comic. The story actually reminded me a lot of a Stephen King story. And it, for readers, if they're not familiar with Stephen King, if they only know him by name or by reputation or by the movies, oftentimes they, they'll just think about him as a writer of supernatural, overt type of horror themes, like the monsters and the killers. Here's Martin! (laughs) Well, that kind of goes into the story because within each one of Stephen King's stories, there is a very human element of horror. And you, you were paraphrasing The Shining there. And my feeling about The Shining, the book, is that if you took away the haunted house element the story still would have played out the exact same because that is actually a story about how alcoholism destroys a family. And in this case, that's what I felt like I was reading. I was reading about a man who was on a path to self-destruction, whether or not he was going to become Firestorm, whether or not he was going to become this nuclear character. Stein was a ticking bomb. Mm -hmm. And it started when, you could argue that it started beforehand, but when Brad Baxter beats the crap out of him, 
I think that that's that is such a damaging moment to his psyche that I mean he literally has ghosts about it. He sees Brad in like yeah. in, in in crowd shots. He's he never gets over that fact, that sense of powerlessness. And I have no idea if this is if this is true. I mean you could ask him about it sometime, but I wonder if Jerry Jerry Conway ever got beat up like that or ever had a moment like that where he mm. felt victimized like that because I know somebody who has. I know somebody who was beaten up in a bar and the the impotence that it left, that sense of helplessness led him to do some very destructive things afterwards. And it's just like that's how that's how I was reading like that this defining moment that Stein felt powerless he felt physically weak and what right. that led to him to do to to focus on his intelligence to always be superior in that regard but that was that that illusion was threatened in weird ways like when he has this moment with with his wife when it's it's the the art is ambiguous does he actually hurt her does he pull her arm too hard or is she resisting? There's there's some ambiguity there, but it's yeah. I, I feel like he, it was building to the sense where he was he was going to explode, whether or not there was a nuclear power generator in at the end of the book or not. Yeah, and you know, and they don't come out and say in the story too, but and that sort of hints at it. What happened with Clarice um, is that he's a bit of a control freak. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants because of what happened with Brad. He is desperate to control every aspect of his surroundings, and he couldn't control Clarissa. Now, I'm not saying that she's a good person or anything like that, and he was out of line. I'm just saying that she she was an element, a wild card element he couldn't control, and it got out of hand. Yeah. And this makes me wonder about the nature of his relationship with Ronnie and how healthy that was. And I mean, you would have a better better view of it than I do because you're just more experienced with the character, but... Did it ever feel like Martin was trying to control Ronnie the way he the way he advised him, or was he was he more patronly and fatherly? Or I mean, he, it was it was more like almost a school teacher. I mean, he was constant a uh, school teacher that's riding your ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was constantly on Ronnie's case. He was every time they transformed into Firestorm. Uh, one of the signature things was Professor Stein was always being inconvenienced. He was always mad at Ronnie. It's like, what now? I'm in the middle of a you know an experiment or whatever, and he was always frustrated. And often would you know he'd make suggestions. Ronnie would take them or not. And there's other times where he would just tell Ronnie how Ronnie did everything wrong. Now, here's something interesting that I just occurred to me tonight, and I wonder if it ties into this in any way. Brad Baxter, we talked about that. Yep. Football player. Yeah. Ronnie Raymond, football, football player. player. Yeah. So I wonder if when Jerry wrote this story. You know, a um, hundred comic books later, which, by the way, uh, I did the math on it. By this point, roughly around this point, Jerry had written Firestorm in a hundred different comic books, believe it or not. Okay. 50 issues of Firestorm, you know, JLA, flashback ups, DC Comics Presents, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, I wonder when he writes, wrote this issue, if he was consciously thinking about the fact that Brad's a football player and Ronnie's a football player, or he was just thinking about, you know, who's a good antagonist for a nerd. Yeah, college jock. Yeah. Yeah. Flash Thompson, you know, right. whatever. Right. So it's um, I, there. I don't know that he was ever trying to control Ronnie because there wasn't times where he was frustrated with Ronnie. You know, um, was Ronnie not doing necessarily what he said? But it was it was usually more like a, an angry teacher. So, and I mean, there were certainly moments of kindness where they were friendly, and there were moments where Ronnie would be upset. And there's a whole lot of times where Professor Stein just stayed quiet. 
where Ronnie would be in the middle. And so it makes you wonder, like, what's Stein doing at that point? It just, and there was no reason to have Stein say anything because it didn't push the plot forward. So just, mm-hmm. you know, remove him from the scene. But you wonder, is, like, Stein taking a nap right now? <laughs> you know, what's going on, I wonder? And, and I don't know if I've told you this before. I've, I've said it on the Fire and Water podcast. Stein's my favorite character in the Firestorm story. Uh, I just and, – and it's been that way since I was a kid. There was something about, you know, this idea of this middle-aged guy – who he himself doesn't have powers, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even get to be the hero. He's the backseat driver. He's the advisor. He's, the, he's actually a tremendous hero because he's not physically built. He's not predisposed to violence, you know, like, like Ronnie who's a football player, right. you know, going in and punching somebody. He's just kind of he's programmed he's, for he's that. He's a man of action. He's right. Stein's not, and yet Stein always stepped up to the plate when he needed to. There were times where they would separate. There was a great issue of Firestorm where Stein redesigned Red Tornado to help catch Killer Frost, and so Stein kind of was responsible for saving the day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great issue of JLA where Stein has a fisticuffs with Hector Hammond on the astral plane. I love that issue. That has one of I the know. best covers. Oh, it totally does. I got Perez to sign it. I was so excited. Um, it's it's a really, really cool character. It, the fact that, again, he, and I'm repeating myself, but just the fact that it's a regular guy who pulls himself up to be a hero every time is is great. And I, I love that about him. Yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. I think just because we're getting older, I do. I relate to that character a lot more now. I like Ronnie, too. I like what he represents for the DC universe. Um, and this goes to the back matter, the essay that uh, Jerry Conway wrote at the back of this issue. Firestorm is a Marvel character living in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very much cut from that Marvel mode. And you can see how, how the, the DC heroes created in the 70s are much more like the Marvel characters, like Firestorm and Blue Devil and Cyborg in the way they get their powers more or less accidentally. Um, and a position that I've often held, that one of, the, one of the differences between the DC heroes and the Marvel heroes, if you take them at their core, is I think the Marvel heroes are all mostly, at least the ones created during the Marvel age by Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko, are anti-heroes. And not the way the 90s kind of depicted anti-heroes as, you know, gun-toting, cigarette-smoking, bad bad role model anti-heroes. I mean anti-hero in the sort of literal definition of a character with some natural character flaw that you wouldn't expect them to be the the good guy. For instance, if you've got a billion-dollar war suit that can fly and shoot blasts, who are you going to give that suit to? Probably not the alcoholic womanizer <laughs> narcissist. Um, if you can have, give somebody all the things, all the powers that a spider can do, it's not going to be the fifteen-year-old science nerd. Um, <laughs> you know the the power with the you know the the Hulk, the the rampaging Hulk. It's it, the the hero is going to be like the seventy-pound again scientist. All of these characters from the Marvel Universe have some internal flaw that makes them ill-suited to be a good guy. And that's what makes them compelling. That's why we love the Marvel characters. The DC heroes from the Golden, a lot of the Silver Age, are different than that. I always say that the DC heroes would be superior men and women, even if they didn't have their powers. If Superman didn't have Kryptonian DNA, he would still fight for truth, justice, and the American way as a crusading reporter. Um, if Batman never put on the cape and cowl, he would still be one of the richest, smartest, most physically like talented and successful men in the world. 
Hal Jordan, if he never got the power ring, would still risk his life in experimental jets. Barry Allen would still put criminals away as a CSI. The DC heroes all kind of, they're, they're self-made heroes, even without their powers. Firestorm kind of changed that trend, and that was coming from Jerry Conway. That was the marvel that he brought with him when he came to DC. So I like what Ronnie represents, and Martin Stein to, to that degree. Martin Stein is part of that equation, because as you were just describing, Martin Stein isn't a hero. He's not the guy that you would ever expect to save the day. He's just the, the advisor, the supporting character. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he gets to be integral in that way. And I love, I love that dynamic about the characters. That's, that's, that's the most unique thing about them. That's what I love about them, is their, their relationship. How you don't have the character without both of them. And you need how different they are in order for the character to work. Well, it functions on so many levels because you get the interactivity between the older person and the younger person. You get the interactivity between the, the, the not-so-smart guy and the book-smart guy. You get you – know, in a comic book, one of the biggest problems you deal with is thought balloons and telling you what the character's thinking. But these guys can actually talk to each other to help fill, you, fill the reader in on what's going on in the story. So it functions on so many levels there. Now, I want to go back to real quick to touching on the Marvel character living in the DC universe. You mentioned that. Sp- uh, Firestorm actually uh, is very purposefully the anti-Spider-Man. Uh, when Jerry Conway created Firestorm, he came over to DC. He specifically tried to create the opposite of, of Spider-Man, where Peter Parker was the weakling and Flash Thompson was the bully, and you know, and, and Peter got the powers. Well, here the story is basically: what if Flash Thompson got the powers, mm-hmm. and Peter Parker was the bully, which is Cliff Carmichael, right? And he, he carried that through. And so, some other interesting things that didn't occur to me until years later about Firestorm being a Marvel character. I mean, think about all the different tropes he's got. You mentioned a few of them. You know, he's accident. He received his powers accidentally. Well, he got exposed to radiation. Um, he's got an unusual, uncontrollable appearance where his head's on fire. Mm-hmm. You know, he does not have a cape. You know, it's, it's, it's a, his, his biggest flaw, uh, I mean, he can't control, he can't affect uh, organic matter, but that's not really the big one. The biggest flaws are in, in his psyche, really, is, you know, the, the conflict between Stein and, 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 and Ronnie. Whereas, again, with, with a Marvel character, that is where the flaws usually are, is a psyche issue, which is, or in DC, it's more of an external issue like kryptonite or bind the, the, bind the bracelets or yellow. Those are, so that's one of the things, too, you see in difference between Marvel and DC. So it really is, I mean, it's very much a Marvel character. Mm-hmm. It even has the built in Marvel team up factor, how every time two Marvel characters get together, they fight first. <laughs> Well, yeah, well yeah. every time Firestorm fuse, every time the two characters fuse together to make Firestorm, you're right. You always have that that bit of antagonism between them with Stein saying, what do you need now? I was just in the middle of doing something. Exactly, exactly. And I think Stein made it up sometimes. Like I think he'd be taking a doze in his chair. And he'd, I was in the middle of an important experiment, Ronald. Well, from a character who we just said, he's, he is that control freak. Every time they go into battle, he's riding shotgun. Yeah, he doesn't get control, so he's he is perpetually not in control of what his, for all intents and purposes, his body is doing. Yep, there's a couple of things in the story I want to touch on real quick. One area that I felt like they could have probably improved, and this is probably in the art more than in the writing, but it, when Stein goes to turn on the nuclear reactor, that is the big moment. Yeah, that is when, even though earlier in the story he said that's when Firestorm was created when he made certain decisions, but really when he turned on that reactor. There was, that, there was no turning back. That's when Firestorm was going to happen and because Stein made a terrible, terrible decision. There's, he should not have turned on a nuclear reactor in the middle of New York City at night by himself because he's ticked off. You know, bad, bad, bad idea. <laughs> but anyway, 
it, the story, the writing does say that everything that had happened to him at this moment led up to that. And I felt like if the art had really made a bigger deal about that panel, I don't know, him clicking the button or had really just honed in on and really – because the first couple times I read it, I didn't realize that that panel was so important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the dialogue, sort of. I mean, you kind of read it. But if the art had really helped convey the importance of that, that would have been just a big moment. Like everything that had gone wrong in his life, you know, uh, Brad Baxter and, and his wife and everything led to this single bad decision. Yeah. And uh, the art I, really hit that home a little harder. Yeah, I wish – you're right. I wish we had a few more panels to kind of let that moment breathe. Yeah. And uh, if this was a more modern comic, like in, in what what we sort of generally perceive as a sort of decompressionist style of telling, like I could see that being just eight pages of just him <laughs> looking at the computer, eight silent pages, of just him staring at the staring at the button, getting ready – Maybe taking a drink and then finally <laughs> pressing the button. I was like, Sweat I, on his forehead. Yeah, I, we don't need to go that far, but just uh, uh, one, one or two, just quiet panels of him making that decision would have been good. And as a follow-up to that bad decision, there's something, and I didn't catch this till I read it tonight too. I, I somehow I never picked up on this. He says in here, um, and, and any of you match heads out there that are that have, are familiar with Firestorm historically, when when Stein first became Firestorm. After they would fission, he couldn't remember their adventures as Firestorm. Um, that was just the case. He would, you know, he thought he blacked out. And then Ronnie, as a total douche, didn't tell Stein what was happening for like a year. It was pretty bad. Anyway, he actually explains in here that when they fused and became Firestorm, Stein was able to see how what his horrible decisions had done and led them to, right? And had done to his life. And then and he went into denial over it. He was in denial at how horrible things had become and the decision he made caused all of this. And therefore, that, that denial caused him to black out his memories of him as Firestorm. And I didn't even pick up on that till my reading tonight. I'm like, wow. So you know, whether that's a retcon or whether Jerry's just now finally explaining it, um, I think it's more of a retcon really to explain why Ronnie – why Stein didn't remember. But that's great. I mean that's really, really good how Stein – Blocks it out, and then later on, when he kind of comes to terms with what what happened, then he can remember their adventures as Firestorm. It's it's really a nice little moment. Yeah, on page ten, love the uh, the sex scene. Um, it's good that we have that. We're not going to get another uh, another dose of nudity in Secret Origins until we see the origin of Doll Man. Um, oh God, listeners, listeners can look forward to that in a couple weeks. Woohoo! <laughs> And it's Stein getting action. How crazy is that? There you go. That's really the only reason I like the story. Well, I, I mean, you know it was my favorite panel. So. <laughs> you know, another thought here, too, is, you know, I, I enjoyed this issue quite a bit. But it is worth noting that this is at the time when Jerry's winding down. Um, I think I may have mentioned at the top end of the show that you know this is almost the end of Jerry's run. Mm-hmm. And he said in interviews he feels like at this point he wasn't turning out his best work. Well, while you could, as we said, you could make the argument this probably should be more the origin of Firestorm and not the origin of Professor Stein, um, I still enjoy the comic for what it is. But I'm totally biased, obviously, with Firestorm. I mean, I'm, I'm all in on this. But and As a character piece, I love it. Um, I don't know if it does one of the jobs that I think it needed to do, but as a purely standalone story, in fact, if you cut out the bookends with Firestorm, 
Mm -hmm. and just had this almost as a melodrama romance story. You could put this in any other comic, like non-superhero comic, Mm. and it would be Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Um, It's, yeah, the the story is great. I, I, I love this character sketch. I'm just sort of, I'm still not sure that, I'm not sure if this was the story that needed to be told for this series, but I'm glad that it got told because I like what we're seeing of Stein here. And I haven't read enough of the early issues to to really compare the quality that Jerry Conway was putting out earlier to this one. You mentioned the earlier issues. You know, there's an interesting callback in this one with Crystal Frost. Yeah. Actually, that was something that I noticed that I wanted to bring to your attention because it seems like there is a bit of a continuity gap. And uh, I'm assuming I'm assuming this was Conway just simply forgot um, because the way that Martin Stein and Crystal Frost are reacting in here doesn't jive with how she – well, I mean, she's crazy, so that could be the no-prize explanation. <laughs> but the way, the way her story is explained in Firestorm Issue 3 – Yes. That's her first appearance? Yes. Um, at that point, it was said that he was already a professor when she was kind of stalking him. Yeah. And he didn't know that she existed. Here, they're undergrads and clearly – friends and she's she's crushing on him and he's pretty if he notices her he's just too traumatized by brad baxter's beating to kind of give her the time of day or just doesn't want to just feels damaged and doesn't want her her sympathy well he he actually says he was trying to work up the courage to ask her out yeah which goes also against what they said in firestorm number three so yeah and i don't know if it's just jerry not remembering right or just wants to take a little creative license for a bit of a retcon and it's a pretty minor one in the scheme of things so either way yeah you're right there's some definite uh variation from what is here versus the original issue number three there's also a little bit of difference where um in this ronnie grabs professor and starts to drag him away from the dynamite, whereas in the original story, Ronnie goes to grab the dynamite and get the dynamite out of there. I mean, it's really micro differences here, right. but uh, just stuff worth noticing. Did you have any other thoughts, any other specific ideas about the issue? No, I think it was, uh, as I said, an enjoyable issue in general. Again, it's much more for the diehard Firestorm fan than for the average reader. But at that point, Firestorm is a pretty well-known character. So I, I, I enjoy it. I think it still does qualify as a secret origin of Firestorm because you do learn what actions Martin Stein took in his life that led to this moment. It is. It's, it's the flip side of Firestorm issue one. It's, and, and it's funny that until they wrote this, I never even realized it was missing. Hmm. You know, because Stein was always around, but he was never the focus of Ronnie. It was always more about Ronnie and Stein when they had room. Yeah. So... If people want to learn more about Firestorm, I've got some recommendations if they'd like. Sure. Okay. So uh, <laughs> let, me, let me be a little bit more enthusiastic than that. <laughs> sure, if you got a talk shag. I mean, if you were in the middle of your story, I personally wasn't paying much attention to it. If you want to finish it, that's fine. I'm sure somebody it, somewhere cares. But, you know. No, really. Finish, please. <gasps> anyway. Shag, so. shag you've, you've read much better Firestorm comics than this. What should readers be looking for if they wanted to learn more about the character? <laughs> 
Thanks for asking. Um, there's several different things you can pick up out there. Some are collected. Some are in you know loose, floppy editions, if you will. Here's a couple ones I would recommend. If you're interested in the Ronnie Raymond, Professor Martin Stein version of Firestorm, definitely pick up the trade paperback called Firestorm, The Nuclear Man. It collects the first five issues of the series. Well, really the first six. There's a sixth issue that was not actually published. It got eaten up by the DC implosion. But this trade paperback includes that issue in black and white, which is pretty cool. And is totally out of continuity at this point. And it also gives you several of the flash backup appearances of Firestorm drawn by George Perez himself. There's also, uh, it's my favorite run is the run from 1982, which is called Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, by Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick. I would suggest you pick up the first nine issues of that. You're going to have to get it in soft copy. Uh, it might be a little harder to get now that Firestorm's starring in The Flash, but um, they're out there. I mean, for years, they were less than 50-cent fodder. Um, I don't know what they're going for now, maybe a little bit more. So Fury of Firestorm 1 through 9 is great. And then when you're done with that, go back for issues 14 through 18 in Annual 1. It's the greatest trade paperback never printed. It uh, Again, that's issues 14 through 18 in Annual Number 1. It is this incredible story. introduces Firehawk, Tokamak. It's my personal favorite Firestorm saga of all, so it's great. There, if, you're, if you like the Jason Rush Firestorm, you can pick up the first three issues digitally. They're out there on Comixology. Or you can pick up some tra- – there's a couple trade paperbacks out there. Um, another one that's worth picking up is a Dan Jurgens one that came out just a couple years ago. It collects Fury Firestorm, Nuclear Man number 13 through 20. Now, this is New 52, but this is Dan's attempt to return Firestorm to a more iconic version. So that's out there. It's, uh, that trade paperback is called uh, Takeover. So that's worth looking at. There's there's a lot of good Firestorm stuff out there, folks. I personally love some other stuff. Like Firestorm went through a weird period where he became the elemental version of Firestorm, which really has very little to do with the, the previous Firestorm. But it's so good. It's issues 85 through 100 of his series. It's sort of uh, – mature is not the right label, but it is more – intellectual maybe and more socially conscious certainly ish uh, stories telling you know he's he's dealing with the planet and how he, you know, pollution and how the human race is destroying and he actually he becomes essentially like almost like a god of fire and he actually thinks about cleansing the earth at various points like is human race it would the would the planet itself be better off if the human race was wiped off of it and he thinks about doing it. he comes close to doing it a couple times um sounds like the plot of a movie i've seen recently well, they did it first. So, then there's a, another great run, uh, issues 62 through 64, and annual number five, which is the birth of uh, the blank slate version of Firestorm. The first time Firestorm was really changed up quite a bit. There's a lot of great stuff out there. If you want, hit FirestormFan.com and just type in like essential or recommendations, and you'll find a post where I listed all kinds of great issues. And that's FirestormFan.com. Is this where I, I pimp all my other stuff? Yeah, you might as well. Cause- this is where you can make a sandwich, because this could take a while. <laughs> so I mentioned Firestorm Fan. I'm also uh, on the Fire and Water podcast, as I mentioned. We do a Who's Who podcast, which I think if you like Secret Origins, I think you would really like the Who's Who podcast, where we go through each issue of Who's Who, cover page by page. We also do a Hero Points podcast, where we cover the role-playing games. Um, I'm part of the Ultraverse Network, which is a series of podcasts uh, supporting the Ultraverse comics from the 1990s, which... Some people remember and still love. I'm part of the Who True Freaks, which is a Doctor Who podcast over on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am one of the members of the Legion of Super Bloggers. You can find that at legionsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, and Tumblr, all under Firestorm Fan. I do show up once in a while on Views in the Long Box and the Marvel Superheroes podcast and the Flash podcast and something that's damn near dead called Dead Both and Spies. 
that's just, going to be the one where you spread yourself too thin. It could be. It could be. I mean, it, you know what it is? Actually, I'm not sure if I believe you because dead both and spies just naturally implies you're spreading misinformation as it is. So I, I don't know that I can trust you. So. Never should. Anyway, folks, um, this has been, a, I'd say an honor, but not really, uh, maybe for you. But it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed this, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate having you, and I'm sure that I'll get you back in a few months. So. I, I'd love to come back. I, Secret Origins is a series I have a huge passion for, and uh, I, I look forward to listening to every episode, when, like I said, the parts where you're not speaking. And um, I can't wait to uh, talk again about it. Thank you very much, Shag. Good night. It's time for listener feedback from the Secret Admirers. First, I got a ton of great comments and likes on Facebook, Twitter, and the website, which is always very appreciated. This week, Facebook likes came from Aaron Moss, Adam Stabelli, Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Burt Barnard, Chris Ivey, Gene Hendricks, The Hammer Strikes, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Martin Gray, Rob Kelly, Sean M. Myers, Terry Wood, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Uh, the same Van Z mentioned on Facebook, just listen to episode one, excellent, looking forward to more. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Loved the first show and look forward to many more. I can never think of Wayne Boring without picturing the particular pose he gave the flying Superman. Talk about iconic. And his women were utterly bewitching. I also received a note from Aaron Moss, a.k.a. Brother Head. He said, Hey Ryan, I really need to stop listening to your podcasts. That's all. No, wait, wait, there is more. Good. Head says, First, you made me rethink the Star Wars prequels. Now I'm rethinking Man of Steel and the New 52 Superman. No, seriously. This was a great podcast. I agree with you and Chris that the marriage of Supes and Lois was great and that Wonder Woman relationship isn't as great. My only problem with your podcast is that I've come in at the beginning, which means that now I have to wait until you release your next episode. If I'd come into this midway through, I could at least binge listen. But nope, now I have to wait. Darn. I think I need to pull out my old issues of Secret Origins and take another read. Thanks for the great show. Keep up the awesome work. And to Shag and Rob, the boy done you proud. Aw, thanks, Head. And thanks to Van Z and Martin Gray for their comments as well. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Anthony Durso, Between the Pages blog, Firestorm fan, Greg Araujo, Nathaniel Wayne, Rolled Spine podcast, Siskoid, and Too Dangerous. I got a whole lot of comments on the website... Going back to episode 1, The Secret Origin of the Golden Age Superman, Jeff Nettleton said, Enjoy the broadcast, though I should have pulled out my scans of the issue. I agree that Thomas was too slavish to the original. In my opinion, that was the trait that marred much of his DC work. He'd start out well, then go off on tangents that were related to old JSA stories. It ruined Infinity Inc. for me, at the tail end of the book. He kept it mostly in check in All-Star Squadron. I haven't read the Secret Origin books for a while, so I can't remember if he loosened up after a while. I do feel for him, though, when DC decided to put the JSA on ice. It was a dumb move, which they recanted fairly quickly, but Thomas had long since parted ways with DC. Enjoyed the mention of DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. 
I loved that comic, as it was my first time with Earth 3, and it was such a great story. I did not read the Superman family issues that Chris brings up. I know that the book wasn't selling huge numbers, so perhaps he was the only person who saw it. I think I only read three or four issues of that book in my time. I really enjoyed the discussion about the maturity of the DC books pre-crisis. As a Bronze Age reader, I find myself agreeing in that they were mature, but not adult. One of the joys of the Earth 2 stories was seeing the married, older heroes and their children. Part of what drew me to Infinity Inc. was the legacy aspect. DC kind of lost that for a time, until Starman. I love the post-crisis DC line, as they were really producing some great books across the company and seemed to have really found a new drive. But I do think that they could have had the same without Crisis. It was more the new blood with backing from Jeanette Kahn, Paul Levitz, and Dick Giordano who revitalized things, not the crisis event. They got the people from first, like John Ostrander, as well as the returning Mike Grell, Mike Gold, and Joe Staten. They got young talent, and they benefited from the exodus from Marvel. Um... There was still some teething trouble in that 10 years from the mid-70s to mid-80s, but they were growing, especially once Khan started improving the compensation and provided incentives to be creative. If nothing else, it would have avoided some of those messy retcons. Besides, the parallel worlds concept wasn't that hard to understand. It could usually be explained in a few sentences, at the beginning. I think it had less to do with the fans than it did with the ex-Marvel guys and Neophyte editors. I look forward to more, especially my favorite issue, the Manhunter one. I wonder if Jeff is talking about the Martian Manhunter or the Manhunters issue that tied in with Millennium. Let me know which issue you're referring to, Jeff, because I think I blocked the Manhunters issue from my memory because Millennium was so awful. Um, anyway, got a comment on episode 1 from Diablo Frank. He starts off by thanking me for using a WordPress site instead of Blogger. Frank and I are on the same page about Blogger being more user-friendly for creators, but the functionality of WordPress is so much easier for commenting. So, we do this for you guys. Uh, Frank goes on to say, I'm going on about my commenting habits like this because you spent almost two hours talking about the origin of pecan-flavored Superman. Ouch! And even one slice of pecan pie is about 19 times as much tolerance as I normally have for Superman originingation. I own a fair few issues of this series and have never hesitated to not buy a copy of the debut edition. I don't think I've ever even bothered to flip through a copy. So I think the scans here sum up my entire exposure, and I don't want more. I still have the remains of my Superman number 1 Treasury Edition, and I vastly prefer the coarse but frenetic original material to the slavish, anemic recreation seen here. The Legend of Aquaman is the Sea King's issue of Secret Origins in all but name and overall superior quality. I don't have any issues with pulp science superhero Jor-El, and I accept the green outfit more readily than that stupid lazy thing John Byrne threw him in. I do believe Ed McGuinness is my favorite Superman artist, as I have to actively resist buying items with his Man of Steel on them. Gloriously supersized interpretation. I'm also fond of John Bagdanov and Joe Schuster, among many others. I very much like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, but he's part of the trend toward the smaller, sleeker, more Chris Reeves Superman, which in retrospect I see as diminishing of the character. I like Jerry Ordway's Man of Steel okay, but he's also part of that trend. Okay, well, for my secret admirers, keep this secret. Don't tell Rob, but I'm sort of thinking about covering the Aquaman special as part of the series. Not entirely sure yet. 
As for favorite Superman artist, I disagree with Frank. I do like Bogdanov's Superman, but I have never warmed to Ed McGuinness's style. I haven't read his issues of Superman. I'm familiar with Ed McGuinness from the Superman-Batman team-up book and from Red Hulk. And I just don't like his style. It's a subjective thing. It's personal taste. The muscles on top of muscles with the overly cartoony face... So even as I describe that, I think McGinnis would be an awesome fit for a Shazam book, but I can't get behind him on Superman. I don't mind a somewhat sleeker or less sculpted Superman look because his power doesn't come from his muscles. His physiology is alien, so he doesn't need to be completely jacked to exude that sense of the strongest man on the planet. Uh, Moving forward a bit, Chris Franklin left a comment on episode 2, The Story of Blue Beetle. Great episode, Ryan and Tim. I bought this one right off the stand, so this was my first issue of Secret Origins. I passed it along to my pal Grover since he was a huge Blue Beetle fan and had every issue of the Ween run, but missed out on this issue. I read the Ween Cullen series via his copies and really enjoyed it. I've always liked Gil Kane's dynamism, but some of his 80s work looked messy. I liked the energy he brought to Superman, but it was such a contrast to Kurt Swan's clean style that it seemed wrong. I prefer Kane with another ink to polish, but not overpower his pencils. But no one drew a better thrown punch than Kane, not even Kirby. I think the original editor of the Charlton-specific Silver Age Blue Beetle was a guy named Pat Masuli. He got kicked upstairs and Giordano took over, but I think this was after Garrett's series was cancelled. He had worked on the Garrett BB series, though that's probably why the Garrett issues aren't in the DC Action Heroes archives. They weren't edited by Giordano. Also, in Michael Urie's excellent Dick Giordano, Changing Comics One Day at a Time, Giordano reveals that Paul Levitz purchased the Charlton characters as a present to him. Giordano was given the characters to work with then, but his corporate responsibilities stalled and eventually canceled an in-progress weekly series featuring Blue Beetle and the Charlton characters called alternately Blockbuster Weekly and Comic Cavalcade Weekly, I believe. Dan Garrett never got much action in the DCU. The only time I can really think of him being used was in JLA Year One, and he was treated pretty badly. Not a really shining moment for him there. Tim is right about Dixon's plans for Tim Drake to become the new Blue Beetle under Ted. Dixon established Ted had a heart condition and couldn't go out in tights anymore. Dixon's plan was for Stephanie Brown to become Robin and Tim to become Blue Beetle for a while. His editors nixed the whole thing, and mounting frustrations led Dixon to jump ship to cross-gen. Remember them? No sooner did he leave, voila, Stephanie Brown became Robin under different creators. Looking back now, the death of Ted Kord does look like a manifesto from the dark and gritty DC to Dio and eventually Johns would build. No room for clowns. I hated it. It was senseless, gory, and tasteless, and there was much more of that to come. Okay. First, Chris, I wish Paul Levitz would have bought the Charlton Action Heroes as a present for me. I would have put them all together in this big 12-part series that starts out with the murder of the Peacemaker and then sees the questions start to investigate, and through his story we see a decades-long narrative of societal decay and moral corruption, focusing on Blue Beetle's feelings of inadequacy manifesting in sexual dysfunction, Nightshade rebelling against her mother only to become the woman she supposedly hates, and Captain in Adam's alienation culminating in a spirit quest on the surface of Mars. And I would call the story When Action Heroes Go Bad. I got a lot of thoughtful and passionate comments on last episode's story of Captain Marvel. 
Siskoid said, Captain thrive right away after Crisis, but I loved Ordway's power of Shazam. Then everything all ages that came out after that. Jeff Smith, the DC Kids, and the recent Convergence series was totally awesome and gorgeous. But everything else has been about destroying the Shazam property, at least for me. I agree with Siskoid. My favorite Captain Marvel stories have been the more all-ages-appropriate work of late, like Jeff Smith's Monster Society of Evil book and the kid-friendly Billy Batson and the Magic of Shazam by Art Baltazar and Franco. Uh, Siskoid continues... As for the Secret Origin story, it's up there with Superman's in the number of times I've read it in different comics. Not only is it the same as the original, it was also retold after Legends, again without a lot of variation, at least in the Train Shazam part. The difference is both of these later origins had darker, more realistic art than the origin, which I think kills the tone. Captain Marvel's Bane, I think, is creators who are somehow ashamed of the property's lightheartedness and fantasy elements. For extra credit, discuss how J.K. Rowling stole from the origin for Harry Potter's. While I'll agree that Roy Thomas is much too verbose and old-fashioned, as a teenage reader when this came, I've got to say a large number of comics were like that back then. Have you read Claremont's X-Men? We had not yet transitioned to Miller-style captions, which have now become a ridiculous crutch the same way Thomas's omniscient narrator used to be, so I can confirm for Paul and Nathaniel that this is typical of its era, though the style was on its way out. As for the Big Red Cheese's relevance, I think that comparing him to Superman is the completely wrong thing to do. The similarities are superficial. The look, the basic powers, he doesn't have the whole Kryptonian suite. But Cap is his own archetype, the wish-fulfillment hero, the reader who turns into a superhero. He's Dial H for Hero. He's the original Ninjack. He's Prime. He's Marvel's Captain Marvel in the Rick Jones era. And focusing on that and the vibe more akin to Harry Potter or Narnia and so on, that's what makes Shazam Shazam. Treating him as just another flying brick in Long John's robs the character of his specificity and relevance. Siskoid brings up a lot of really great points there, and I have always thought of Captain Marvel conceptually or intellectually as a wish-fulfillment superhero, but I never actually compared him to the other characters like Dial H or Harry Potter. Brilliant comparison, Siskoid. I love that idea. However, I still think putting him in the same world as Superman complicates things unnecessarily. And then Ange wrote, It seems like I loved this issue more than any of you. I tended to forgive much of these homage issues as simply trying to honor the stories they were based on. So a lot of the clunkiness was tossed aside for me. I always thought that the radios going out would be a massive deal back then, since radio was basically the Times Internet. Robbing the U.S. of its main way of communicating news quickly seems like a big deal. All that said, I think the biggest reason why I like this issue so much is that Jerry Bingham art. I know its quality is mentioned throughout the podcast, but man, it is so beautiful. It is so slick, and I can look right past some of the rougher parts of the story. Between this and Son of the Demon, he'll always rank for me. Yeah, Ange, even if we didn't say enough, I think Paul, Nathaniel, and I loved the art on the Captain Marvel story. And yet, as much as I dig Jerry Bingham, he wouldn't have been my choice for this story. Maybe I'm too familiar with the newer kid-friendly stories of Captain Marvel, but I would have liked someone with a more cartoonish style. And just throwing this as an example, somebody like the late Mike Parabek as one example of that type of style on a Captain Marvel book. 
Jerry Bingham, on the other hand, excels on a character like Batman, I think, or stories in the horror realm. In fact, his style reminds me a lot of Gene Colan, whose work I'll be talking about a lot more next episode. Um, got a long-ass comment from Kyle Benning. It is clear that Kyle loves Captain Marvel, and he strongly disagrees with the positions taken by Nathaniel and I after issue three. I'm going to cherry-pick some of Kyle's comments, but I encourage everyone to read the whole thing at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Kyle says, Very interesting to hear a take that is completely different from my own on the issue. Many of the hang-ups for some of you were, for me, some of the strongest points of the story. Really, when it boils down to it, aside from the issue serving as the final farewell to the Golden Age Captain Marvel, DC couldn't have done any other Secret Origins take on the character, because how DC was going to incorporate Captain Marvel into the DCU hadn't been decided yet. All they knew was that they were going to. It's important to keep in mind the publishing context of when this issue went on sale, which was March 13, 1986. Even though Crisis 12 had already hit, DC was still in this weird fuck stage in between the conclusion of Crisis and the beginning of when the actual changes brought on by it went into effect. For instance, the Superman comics being published were still pre-Crisis Superman. Secret Origins 3 went on sale three months before the Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow story by Alan Moore, and a story I detest, but that's a tale for another time. There was no Man of Steel miniseries yet, no Perez reimagining of Wonder Woman yet. Crisis had wrapped, but it would be months before the changes it caused would be implemented. DC had no clue what they were going to do with Captain Marvel and his supporting cast of characters at this point. There were rumblings that John Byrne may tackle the Big Red Cheese. There was the possibility that Alan Moore would be tackling it. After all, he did write the British derivative version of Captain Marvel for Eclipse in the early 80s. At this point, there was no other story to tell other than to give the Golden Age Captain Marvel a proper farewell and retell his classic origin really for the first time, other than the famous first edition treasury reprint of Wiz Comics number 2. In the end, Byrne walked away from tackling Captain Marvel because DC wouldn't cave on his one term that it be set in a separate universe away from the rest of the DCU. Alan Moore's concept for the series has been released before online, and looking at those notes, it's a good thing his plan was never published. DC dodged a bullet on that one. Kyle also said, The suggestion that this Captain Marvel would fit better in the Marvel Universe, where he would have no other analog or character similar to him, is an interesting one. And Marvel actually tried that in the 1970s with their own Captain Marvel, Marvel, which, not so coincidentally, it was also written by Roy Thomas. Due to a run-in with the supervillain Nitro, yes, the same Nitro that caused the explosion that kicked off the god-awful Marvel Civil War, Marvel had to wear nega bands to slow the cancer growing inside of him. As a consequence of that, he occupied the negative zone and could only be released when teenager and all-around superhero groupie Rick Jones, yes, that Rick, I made Bruce Banner become the Hulk Jones, who wears a matching set of nega bands, strikes them together, resulting in him switching places in the negative zone with Captain Marvel. And because of their partnership, he can somewhat influence Marvel or share his thoughts. They kind of have a shared conscience despite being two different people. It kind of plays fast and loose and ambiguous with the way they are two separate characters or parts of the same whole dynamic. Marvel was an alien come to Earth, so he was kind of that faucet Captain Marvel kid to superhero imposed on a superpowered being from the stars, so a sci fi character instead of a magical or whimsical. So there you go, faucet Captain Marvel mixed with Superman. 
While there are enjoyable parts in that run, it overall didn't resonate too well. I blame that on it being a dynamic shoehorned onto two pre-existing characters in the Marvel Universe instead of an organic dynamic used on new characters from the word go. Great episode, I really enjoyed this one. Both Kyle and Siskoid mentioned the thunderclap sound effect. I'm very happy with that. It's my own little homage to Young Frankenstein. And Chris Franklin came back to comment on episode 3, saying, Fun episode. It was interesting to hear from some folks who are less familiar with the publishing material and more cold on Captain Marvel to get their gut reaction. I see where they are coming from in their criticism of Thomas being too slavish to the actual Golden Age script by Parker. I brought up the same concerns with the Superman origin. Thomas will soon loosen up a bit and balance out covering the Golden Age events with the with the addition of some more modern storytelling techniques. I think ultimately the book is better for it. But as Kyle said, this was the last hurrah for the Golden Age Captain Marvel. You have to assume this story took place on Earth-S, as DC lore has it that Cap and Company's Golden Age adventures took place as published, and they were in suspended animation for decades before thawing out in the 70s. I like Jerry Bingham's artwork, but it may have been too gritty for this story. I feel the same way about Tom Mandrake on the New Beginning miniseries. I think Bingham was basing the captain's look on actor Tom Tyler, who played him in the movie serial. That's a nice touch, but overall it just seems a bit off for the source material. Chris and I are in agreement there. And the last comment, as of this recording, comes from Michael Bradley, who said, I love the idea of stories of the Captain's Marvel from other eras. Why has that never been a thing? Otherwise, three episodes in, and this show is knocking it out of the park. Great job, Ryan, and guests. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Michael, and Kyle, and Chris, and Siskoid, and Frank, and Ange, and everyone who leaves comments and contributes to the show. It means so much. And finally, I got a new iTunes review from Rob Kelly, who said, DC's classic Secret Origins comic was long overdue for a reappraisal, and host Ryan Daly brings the fun with this show and the revolving group of guests. I binge-listened to the first three shows, and can't wait for more. If you're a fan of the 1980s DC comics, then make sure you check this show out. Thanks for that review, Rob. Thank you, everybody who leaves an iTunes review. It's very flattering, and it helps promote the show. And that's all for this episode. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Dracula. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money on this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Standing on the gallows with my Any minute now I'm expecting all hell to break loose People are crazy in times I strange I'm locked in tight, I'm out of range I used to care, but things have changed
The following segment contains inappropriate language and is not recommended for, well, anyone, really. Was there was there anything else that you wanted to hit or talk about that I can splice in? Edit the shit out of that thing. We were not, I don't know, I think it's the comic, I don't think it was us, but we just were not connecting tonight. It just, we, we, were, we were missing and, and weren't firing on thrusters like sometimes we are. I mean, my listeners will probably think we hate each other, and I'm okay so. with that. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah. We we do say we're bestest friends at the beginning. And if you if you do an analysis on all the times we've recorded together, which is probably like, well, like if it's four, it's probably four too many. Then, well, this has been a real good way for me to kill an hour. I appreciate it. Um, Happy to help. So good is loose term, but anyway, I, I could have spent it with my kids, I suppose. But you know, why would I do that? Why would anybody? Ouch! <laughs> Thanks for having me on your show, jerk. But it should be funny if you're giving me crap. Well, you know, that's how some people would play it, but... (laughs) I don't have to go for the funny. I can just go for the meanness and the cruelty. Cool. Looking forward to it. I love the series a lot more than I like you. And again, if you fuck this up, I I will end you. (laughs) I just don't give you any slack. What is it? Like, I barely know you, man. But, like, for some reason... And you did one with Tim Wallace, or what's what's his voice like? Like yours, but more masculine, I would say. Nice, very nice. <laughs> I edit the crap out of these things, so I'll yeah. I'll. Keep I can tell up. we talk for three hours, and my episodes are like five minutes long. I'm like, what the fuck happened? That's really the only five minutes that I ever like. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. The rest is me. I, I email the files to Rob, and we just laugh behind your back. <laughs> fuck again? <laughs> it's just like Frank all over again. <laughs> I think as long as we don't sound like we actually hate each other, if if any semblance of the humor can come through, I'll be happy. I'm not worried about that because I mean we wouldn't. I think they know we wouldn't be recording together if we hate each other, and we wouldn't be being so snarky to each other if we really hated each other. So, right. so and I'm doing my best to cover it because I really do hate you. So. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I mean, I was when when I introduced you as my best friend, I actually had a lighter underneath my hand just to distract <laughs> me. From- <laughs> Holy shit, you're a sick, sick man. <laughs>